It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. My guest today is timely on several fronts, uh, not to mention politics being one of them. Mike Layton is the city councillor for Ward 11 in Toronto at University and Rosdale area. And as councillor, Mike has worked tirelessly to protect and improve city services that people depend on and to preserve the diverse character of the city's neighbourhoods. He has been a strong voice on City Council to make Toronto a world leader in the fight against climate change. Is something we're going to talk about in a little bit. He's also championed building new affordable housing, investments in the arts and culture, as, long, as well as Indigenous issues and reconciliation and uh, better public transit and cycling infrastructure. Mike, welcome to the show. It's great to have you back. Thanks very much. It's great to be back. So a couple of things that we mentioned right off the top there is, uh, of course, the, the climate. Uh, climate change, I think, is such an outdated word for me. Uh, I think that we're beyond climate change. We're more into a climate crisis. Uh, would you agree with that? I would agree 100%. I think with the, with the severity of the storms we're seeing around the world, with the inaction we're seeing by governments everywhere, uh, that we've been put in a position now that we're going to have to be afraid whether or not our grandkids, like one generation down from or two generations down from us, are going to uh, have uh, a world that they can they can have kids in. It's uh, it's getting pretty scary, and we're going to have to do something about it fast. Now you have brought uh, brought forward uh, to city council the desire to do something with climate change, as we're so called. Uh, it's, how is it going with that presentation to try and get something going? Well, it was a couple years ago that I initiated a, uh, a process that then turned into our next generation of climate mitigation and adaptation plan called Transform TO. Uh, that has brought a, a, a significant amount of policy change and, and new spending uh, to make buildings more efficient, to make uh, uh, or help us design and build neighborhoods that, uh, that don't require the use of a car, that generally speaking are just helping promote uh, more car- less carbon-intensive technologies and try to get Toronto on, on that track. And then uh, just last year or earlier this year, we initiated a, um, uh, a, a strategy or, or requested our, our legal staff investigate an opportunity that some U.S. jurisdictions are taking, uh, looking at uh, taking legal action against large-scale emitters. Um, and so we joined the likes of New York City, uh, several uh, several cities on on the U.S. West Coast and California that are actually taking legal action against their large emitters. And we, we would like we would like Toronto to consider the same. It's municipalities that uh, actually have to pay for the impacts of climate change: bigger pipes, uh, more more treatment of our water systems, uh, the loss of and replacement of tree canopy due to invasive species. Uh, the uh, public health programs that respond to severe heat and cold. Uh, these are all things that that municipalities are on the front lines of actually responding to. So far beyond just simply the, the notion that a couple degrees may, may make our world a, a, a less livable place in a lot of places around the world, it's actually municipalities that deal with the consequences of, 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 of climate change on a regular basis. And so we just feel like the companies that are profiting from climate change, from the release of greenhouse gases, should have to pay for the damage that's being done in the cost of cities. It would make sense. Uh, it's unfortunate that that it seems like, you know, I'm, I'm hearing uh, shadows of, of uh, the, the tobacco industry when you say that to me, you know, uh, going, at, going to, uh, to them after the fact instead of having uh, more forward thinking when we're thinking about building or, or moving forward, you know. Uh, about the results of what business is doing, and and is is that well? There's, I think the tobacco is this uh, well-established case that we all kind of recognize now that the tobacco industry not only profited from the uh, the the, the a sickness and 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 profited from people as they as as they were dying of uh, of smoking-related illnesses, but also they tried to hide it. Mm. And that's the exact same thing that uh, that large-scale greenhouse gas emitters have been trying to do for decades. They've been funding think tanks and trying to disparage this notion of climate change. But we know that there is wide scientific consensus of the cause of climate change, uh, what the what the impacts are going to be, uh, and who's co- like and and who should pay. So 
But there's a there's actually, and this is very recent, there's a far more contemporary example, and that's the producers of op- opioids who were just successfully sued uh, in the U.S. for hiding and uh, for for the promotion of if if I I'm not a lawyer, but if mm. I understand it correctly, for both the promotion of uh, of opioids, mm. and, which which resulted in in greater addiction, but also hiding just how addictive and dangerous they were. Um, actively taking steps to try to hide it from government, to try to hide it from the public. And that's what's more devious mm-hmm. about uh, these cases like opioids, like smoking, like uh, like like climate change, is if, if someone recognizes that they've been doing damage and takes steps to ensure that it doesn't happen again, or they tra- even even if they were transitioning to a, to a cleaner economy, which some large-scale fossil fuel companies are, are, are doing, the fact that they tried to hide it from us and continued to profit uh, and do the damage, will, willingly doing the damage, that's what's so, so, what strikes me as just being so such a personal affront to, to everyone that they would put their greed ahead of the well-being of the entire population of the world. And that's the statement right there, isn't it? Uh, it, it it's somewhat different in the, the fact of the opio- opioids uh, and or tobacco in that they were users. This we're talking about is worldwide. This is the planet we live on, that if we, uh, if we don't take steps, just like you said, for profit, it makes no sense that these people also have children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they also have families. They are for – I just I can't understand why anyone would want to, for the sake of profit uh, – Eliminate the possibility of that lineage being, like everyone's lineage, gone if we don't. How do can they not recognize mm-hmm. that? I, and I, I, you look at the the, the sort of an indigenous worldview of seven generations. Mm-hmm. I'm having trouble thinking past two. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I, I just, I, I'm I'm having difficulty grasping that my children's children um, won't be able to breathe the air. Or or plant food to grow because it just either won't grow or it will be it, it will be contaminated, um, or they just won't be able to see the same birds, mm. um, experience the same things that uh, that every generation up to ours probably didn't have. Like save a species or two uh, being extinct, and I, I shouldn't say it so lightly, uh, but save a species or two. Mm. Uh, th- that's how the world changed. But if you look at the at the at the in the incredible changes that will happen in just the next 40 years uh, if we don't do something about climate change. It, it really causes you to wonder um, what world we're, we're leaving for, for, for that generation. And I think once people accept that, that they're, they're willing to make some change. But greed is such a powerful motivator. It certainly is. And I certainly hope that those people don't think they're above <laughs> The fact that they can, they will save themselves somehow. Maybe they think they've got enough money to actually do something like that. I don't know what they're thinking. Well, they certainly got enough lawyers because <laughs> we're they're already trying to intimidate uh, those that are involved in, in in this same push in in Canada. Um, we're constantly being served Freedom of Information Act uh, uh, requests, which take a lot of time. We'll we'll fulfill them, but it takes a lot of time to go through your records, and they're all using these. Words like climate change lawsuit mm-hmm. and all of these words that they think something nefarious is going on, that, that there's some wide network of not-for-profits and, uh, and politicians that are trying to bring down the, the, the fossil fuel industry when, you know what, it's a handful of people that just really care about their, their kids. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, and they have the money as well. And the money has come mm-hmm. from the people that they are profiting, uh, they are profiting from. So, you know, when we were talking there, we talk about coming back to the city, and this could be any city, but particularly when you walk down the streets of Toronto and you see the amount of construction going on. Um, and, uh, and when I think of, of the, the climate, uh, when you go by uh, any construction site, and I don't know if, if this is something that, that you think about, but I think about it when I walk by, there's a lot of construction trucks sitting there with their engines running. And to me, it's like they're not going anywhere. Why are they letting these engines just spew out stuff instead of just shutting off the engine? So we do have an idling bylaw, uh, but it does have some it 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 does have some restrictions. And I, I believe, in particular, 
uh, cement trucks, mm-hmm. uh, emergency vehicles. Right. Like these are the types of vehicles that have uh, exemptions from it, um, just because when if they cease operating. Um, but it's incredibly if they cease operating, they they stop functioning and, right. and don't serve their purpose. Sure. Um, I think one of the frustrations is it's so difficult to monitor mm-hmm. and to enforce uh, because you can't be everywhere mm-hmm. at at the same time, and uh, you have to kind of walk over and with a stopwatch start it. Once they hit three minutes, that's when you can issue uh, your 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 ticket from the bylaw sure. enforcement can can issue their ticket. So it ends up being like this: we need to start having companies that, as a matter of policy, take take steps to uh, to ensure their drivers. Are, are doing all they can to re- to reduce um, uh, their their greenhouse gases and just become more efficient. It's mm. probably way more efficient if they just turn their yeah. their trucks off. Uh, but I, like so, that's where there needs to be a greater uh, a culture of conservation. Let's yeah. call it. it because if you think about it, uh, you know, I walk by one construction site, but how many of those are in one city with how many trucks idling? And you think about that across North America and around the world. Some of these construction sites have 100 trucks a day plus mm-hmm. that uh, dump trucks, uh, cement trucks, deliveries. And uh, look, it's important that the city build density uh, in order to address climate change as well. Uh, but we, you're, you're right in that we need to make sure as we're building it, we're doing it in as efficient a way as we can uh, to reduce the, uh, the, the, the footprint to, uh, to, to, to try to ensure that we're we're, we're building that housing in, in as least carbon-intensive a way as we can. Are you aware of any uh, new technologies, uh, stuff that is being presented to you at, at your level uh, that, t- that is, is environmentally friendly or green that, that maybe we haven't heard of or that's stuff that, that the city might be looking at implementing? So one really neat thing that the city's doing, and I just, I, I just think it's really cool because mm-hmm. um, it kind of comes full circle, is we collect biogas from our compost mm. uh, and we collect gas within our landfill mm. there's pipes that go through the landfill after it's covered and it get, collects gas in some form I'm not a lawyer i'm also not an engineer uh, but the biogas we collect from our digester that that deals with our green bin waste uh, we actually put it back into garbage trucks to go pick up more oh, green nice. waste uh, which is just an interesting life cycle sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's not all the power we use and it's it's just at its infancy but we do have like we 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 did develop the technology uh, to capture that gas and put it put it back into the trucks that then serve uh, the community this is gas that would otherwise mm-hmm. escape into the atmosphere mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we're putting it to good use yeah and hopefully uh, it's technology like that that as it becomes more widespread uh, that we can uh, we we can actually continue our quality of life uh, as well as do something that is more sustainable. Mm. I wouldn't say it's the most sustainable way of powering garbage trucks, uh, but it's certainly much more sustainable than just burning fossil fuel. Mm. Is there anything else uh, at the city level that is going on that you're you're either excited about or that that you're that is on the front of your mind that you want to talk about? So one um, one program that I helped uh, d- uh, develop was is called the Home Energy Loan Program, mm. and it is n- right now the only program in Toronto of any level of government that supports energy retrofits on homes. But it it started as energy retrofits, and the program is this: you 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 take out a loan through the city, and you pay it back on your taxes to do a deep energy retrofit. Um, and the the savings in your in your energy bills are roughly equivalent to the repayment of the loan that you do on your property taxes. But the reason why it's so innovative is if you sell your home, mm. let's say you have a twenty year payback period of this of this energy retrofit. If you sell your home, the loan is transferred to the new homeowner. Mm. So if you put twenty thousand dollars or an investment of twenty thousand dollars into your home. And you're you're not worried about not recouping that because it just passes the next right. person. The interest rate is great; it's roughly equivalent to my my mortgage, right. uh, which is a pretty good rate, I guess. And the um, uh, so so we're 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 trying to give an incentive. There used to be a federal program mm. and a that was implemented by the province that gave uh, a grant. This doesn't cost us any money. This is it's it's cost neutral to the to the taxpayer. Individuals pay it back. Mm. It also creates an enormous number of jobs if you scale it up. Mm. It's a small program now, but there's no reason why we couldn't scale it up. There's about 
$2 billion worth of conservation and demand management work in Toronto alone. And a conservative estimate is you you, you make about 10 jobs out of every million. So that's that's a lot of job potential in the Toronto area in the cli- in climate solution. Mm. Uh, now, the, the, the greatest part is this program, the review just came back and they said, let's not only do conservation, let's add solar panels, let's mm. add geothermal uh, uh, heat exchange, let's add uh, solar hot water heaters. So now we, we will fund, the city will fund you to have to put solar panels on your roof uh, or give you a loan to put solar panels on your roof to do change over to geothermal uh, heat exchange. So you're powering uh, your home in, in possibly the, the greenest fashion that you can uh, and to get new windows and, uh, and, and, and seal up the, uh, the cracks in your foundation. So we have this great program out there. Um, unfortunately, without any support from the province or the federal government to supplement some of the some of the cost increases, because it's still our, our, the cost of power and of particularly of natural gas is just so cheap. Um, so that's a, that's one really exciting program that we have at the city that I was closely involved with, um, that I'm really excited to see grow. And I think if more people take advantage of that, um, if the other levels of government say, "Hey, let's piggyback on that city of Toronto program." And let's find a way to really scale it up and create those jobs, reduce those emissions, uh, and uh, and provide for a better future for our kids. And again, that's a, a trickle up trickle up effect, as you said, because not only is it is it beneficial for the homeowners in terms of of creating a more environmentally friendly home, but uh, the energy costs go down. Uh, but but on the larger scale, that's less consumption at that uh, at the energy level, uh, meaning. Like you said, a greater benefit to the entire community and the, and the planet. One thing we did as a city 20 years ago, now it was actually my dad who was very involved in it. We gave an incentive for low-flow toilets. Mm. That seems, it seems like nothing. Each flush is saving 10 liters. Mm. But back then, it was a 20-liter flush. <laughs> you, were, you were using a lot of water, like nice. a day, probably a couple days worth of drinking water mm. in one flush. Mm. Um, now they're, they're three to six liters. Um, But that incentive allowed the city to forego enormous investments at at taxpayers' uh, uh, cost in new infrastructure to treat water. And so rather than us just saying, no, we'll just keep building bigger and bigger pipes and bigger and bigger plants, we said, no, let's, let's stop it on the other end. And it saved us billions of dollars in expansion just those tiny incentives. What it actually did was it shifted the marketplace because mm. now people were only buying six-liter sure. toilets right. because there was an incentive. Right. So what did we do? We took the incentive away because the, mar- uh, the market completely changed. Right. That's the type of thing we need to be doing more yeah, of. Exactly. Um, and it, it allows us to... Uh, it, the, the best part of, of energy conservation is its local jobs. Mm. And if you think about it, right now, if you, you're getting your roof done maybe an under-the-table transaction going, so they're not paying any tax. Mm. Um, There's no EI uh, being paid to those workers. When you do everything above board and you need receipts to get paid by the city, everything is taxed. Mm. So you're actually bringing back more of that income. And then of the income that those construction trades are getting, these are guys making a pretty good pretty good living and good for them. I'm not not saying it's it's good that people get paid well for the work that they do. they are paying taxes too. So the government's actually getting a good chunk of that money back and not spending anything because we're giving it out um, for, for, like we're loaning it. Mm. Um, so what we need is those other levels of government to, to, to give a little sweetener, put a little sugar in the coffee to, sit, to be an incentive for more people to undertake these deep energy retrofits. Um, it'll pay off in the long run uh, for homeowners, for governments, and, and for our economy. Nicely said. So you, you just heard the voice of Councillor Mike Layton for the City of Toronto and uh, Ward 11. We were talking to Mike about a number of things, uh, climate being uh, the one we're, we're focusing on at the moment. Uh, uh, Mike, w- one of the other things that uh, you mentioned in your opening is that, uh, of course, that you, you sit on this uh, Indigenous or Aboriginal Advisory Committee. Um, uh, and I'm just wondering what the, the difference is between... Um, uh, an, an advisory, uh, it's actually, is it an advisory committee that you're sitting on? Yeah, it is. So you sit on a lot of committees, though. <laughs> this is only one of them. And as you, you s- look through the, the, all the, the, the committees you sit on, 
and uh, and you look at all the stuff that you're you're dealing with, and, and there's a, a number of them that I, you know, Aboriginal Affairs being one of them, this advisory committee, uh, but the Board of Health, the Civic Appointments Committee, Infrastructure and Environment, as well as business improvement areas. Um, how do you how do you as a, a counselor manage to balance all that? Now, I'd like to stop before you say anything and and ask you this. As I was looking through your web your web page uh, for the city, uh, you know, right under your name there is staff, and I click on that and it expands, and you have a staff that help you do things. How how important? How much work does the staff help you with in terms of doing this stuff? Well, I don't think it would be possible for for us to operate as public servants and be responsive to our communities without um, the, the, the staff that we, that we have. And our staff, since the number of councillors was, mm. was halved by our premier in the middle of an election, I'll add, um, we, we increased the budget to our staff because we know how many phone calls we get. Mm. Uh, and people want to hear someone on the other side of the phone. If they're, if they're calling 311, which is a great service that serves us in over 100 languages, it's a fantastic level of service that the city provides. But sometimes you get put on hold. Sometimes... You're frustrated because you don't you you don't get a full answer. Um, sometimes you don't like the answer that you get. Mm. And in Toronto, uh, it's p- people have gotten very used to being able to pick up their phone and talk to their counselor, either one of their staff or, or otherwise. But with all the committees that we uh, that we serve on, um, our, our legislative dance card's pretty full. So we're, we're we're we can't take every call individually, uh, unfortunately. Um, and instead, uh, we rely on our staff that act as uh, as us uh, in our absence. And um, they, so we, we've got a couple staff. Some are just just try to make sure I'm in the right place at the right time, um, as one of their many duties uh, on the operational side. Or we have constituency assistant staff that uh, that work through cases um, because oftentimes by by the time the call comes to my office. People have exhausted other avenues to fix uh, whatever problem that they have with a city service or otherwise. And our staff have been there. Some of them have been there with me since I started, uh, since I won my first election in 2010. Uh, and they're, they're incredibly knowledgeable. Um, sometimes they're in charge of starting new projects. So one of my staff is in charge of parks revitalizations. I think we've done at least nine, if not 12, in the, uh, in the eight years I've been there. And every year we... We have a couple more coming, and we we do that work in, in partnership with the community. So we go out and identify people who either have strong opinions or have um, particular insight that they can offer into a park's uh, revitalization, what their park, who the park should be serving, what changes should happen. Uh, and they we work with a landscape designer, and my, my staff helps facilitate that uh, to come up with a design, and then we try to implement it. Uh, so they, they all do kind of a different role in the office. Um, but I don't think we'd be able to 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 manage all of the 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 legislative boards that we're on, mm. as well as all the phone calls that come in and emails and people tweeting at me or like that we we get we get notified of things by any manner of uh, of communication. and um and they're really vital to the functioning of uh, of city hall. And to, to be honest, they probably know how to solve some of these problems much better than I do because they've been doing it regularly for the past decade, right. <laughs> Good point. So I guess what I was getting to is that the, the Aboriginal Affairs Committee is actually an advisory committee. So it's, it's the only one there with the word advisory in it. And I'm just wondering, can you explain the difference between a just a regular committee and advisory committee? Sure. So at, at City Hall, we've got a handful of standing committees. And these are committees that meet on a monthly basis that provide legislative advice to City Council. I serve on the Infrastructure and Environment Committee. Um, then we've got a, uh, a handful of com- committees that is a mix of politicians and of experts. Um, those experts are, are interviewed and, and assigned those roles by city council. Um, they're done that through the Civic Appointments Committee, which I also sit on. Um, then we have a handful of advisory committees, and those committees give us advice on a variety of matters. We have a francophone advisory committee, uh, and we have a... Uh, a film and television advisory committee, and a music industry advisory committee. Those are all of them, the Indigenous, French, um, uh, and the other two I mentioned. And so we, we, those are predominantly actually members of the public. Uh, civic appointments doesn't directly ap- 
interview and appoint them. Those are done by staff, and they go through the Civic Appointments Committee for uh, for ratification. Um, but it's the, the Indigenous Affairs Committee, the Aboriginal Affairs Committee, doesn't have um, direct legislative authority, but we give advice. And so we give advice to the executive committee. So if we if we have an opinion, which we which we do often, uh, we write a letter and put it on the agenda of the um, of the executive committee, and then it would go to city council. Um, so it, it it's really just kind of one other level of of community engagement, rather than every time we had an issue going out and doing a consultation with the indigenous community uh, on on everything in individual meetings. We have a group. Of, of leaders from the Indigenous community that meet regularly so that they can give us ongoing advice. Now, that doesn't mean we replace the other level of, of advice, and our, our divisions themselves actually uh, do do their own consultations with Indigenous committee. The Board of Health has a roundtable. Um, our, our Parks and Environment Committee, regu- our, our, sorry, our, our Parks Division regularly goes out and does consultations with the Indigenous community. They have elders that they'll go to for advice as well. Uh, and the, the, the public library is, is actually a, a, has done an enormous amount of work with the Indigenous community and, and expanding Indigenous languages within the Toronto public library system. Um, they've done a phenomenal job at con- consulting uh, well before any of the other divisions were, were at ahead of it. Uh, so the, 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 affairs commi- the, the Aboriginal Affairs Committee is just sort of another le- level that gives overall guidance to, to the city. I'll give you an example. For, for four years, we fought and gave recommendations for, um, to, to, to start a new Indigenous Affairs office at the city. Until that time, there was one person within our Equity, Diversity, and Human Rights office that was responsible for Indigenous issues. They were every... When, when, when the wave of reconciliation came through uh, the, um, uh, the, across the country, she was inundated with requests from divisions. Yeah, yeah. But what can we do? What are we doing here? Like, what's the best way to do this, that? And it really became clear that one person can only serve an administrative function uh, when they're administering a committee like this or, or, or responding to, to certain requests. What they needed was, was a staff. And so we went out and we actually hired an Indigenous consulting firm to help us develop what that office might look like, what their mandate might be. And it came back and it was a significant budget increase that um, I wouldn't say enormous by comparison to our $11 billion city budget, but it was a big line item. Mm -hmm. And year over year, we were persistent and made the request during the budget time and um, met with the mayor and eventually uh, under this mayor, uh, got a commitment to to fund the office. It was established last year, and this will be its second year. Um, there's it's now a five member office uh, with um, a director level heading it, rather than it being a more junior uh, position. Um, they have a direct line to our city manager, the top bureaucrat in the city, and uh, and and are starting to make uh, some strides in things like cultural competency uh, for for our, our for all of our, our employees. Uh, things like our Indigenous uh, Aboriginal um, employment strategy uh, that we launched a couple of years ago. Um, we, we're also, uh, we've reestablished the committee now that uh, since the election last year, uh, and there's a whole host of other um, recommendations that are coming from things like the inquiring to missing and murdered Aboriginal women and girls uh, that we want to make sure that the city is fulfilling. Great. That's the voice of Mike Layton, my guest today on Moment of Truth. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. We're going to take a pause, but we'll be right back with Mike Layton and more right after this. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. My guest today is Mike Layton. He is a Toronto City Councillor for Ward 11. And we've been talking about a number of things with Mike, uh, climate being one of them. Uh, Of course, that's a big one for all of us these days. The election, of course, is coming up. Uh, now, Mike, I don't know, uh, you know, as a municip- as municipal councillor in politics, um, how, how is it different for you on your side of the table uh, when it comes election time as opposed to the general public? Well, I think I probably have a slightly unique position than the general public and maybe other city councillors uh, vis-a-vis the, uh, when, a, when a federal election rolls around uh, but um, we're 
we're looking for partners. Mm. Cities across the country today, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities is going to make an announcement or this week um, that what what they want to see in a, a, a platform coming from the federal government. And really what it what it is is stability in, in their funding sources and uh, and a willingness to uh, to try to make life better for people by providing better public services. And th- that takes a commitment from every party, uh, from every from every level of government, I should say. And uh, th- that's what what the city needs out of uh, out of the federal government is someone that's going to work with the provincial government, but also directly with cities uh, to to help fulfill the mandate of uh, of that level of government. You know, the, the, the city the city government is really just a vessel for implementing policy on other levels of government. Mm. Uh, and we need to be given the tools and resources to do that. We don't have them uh, as of now. Uh, we don't have a great source of uh, of revenue at the city. Uh, property taxes are difficult to raise. Uh, we're the only we're the only level of government that has to do an increase every year just to just to stay the status quo. Mm. Um, other municipal, uh, the federal government and the provincial government collect income tax that automatically goes up uh, with with the economy, but ours doesn't. So we we need to uh, we need to continuously do increases, uh, and uh, and it really is not enough because it's not a it's not a tool, it's not a revenue tool that allows for uh, people's ability to pay to be reflected. Maybe a little bit in the property value of their house, but if you're retired and purchased your house in 1970, uh, it, it's probably your taxes are probably starting to increase as a line item uh, on against your your fixed income. So we need a partner at the federal and provincial level uh, to to give us the tools and resources to actually implement the policies they want to see on affordable housing, on providing safe and clean drinking water, on uh, on, on fighting climate change, on getting people moving and having a strong economy because uh, Toronto is kind of the engine of the of the uh, of the uh, our, our national economy. Uh, so these to do these things, we need resources. And that's what we need from a from a federal government. Uh, you know, uh, we've heard, uh, at least I've heard, uh, in, in stories that that the cities are also, uh, you know, they're they're they're, they're sort of the, the front the front runners or the 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 people on the uh, at, at the the front of the the line when it comes to uh, dealing uh, having to deal with the the uh, the things that are implemented either at provincial or federal level, um, and that can. A, can have a, a, a positive or a negative effect as well. Um, so when you say partners, uh, is it a delicate balancing act for municipalities? Well, I think that we, we need to demonstrate what we need from the federal government, but we also need them to be willing to actually make the investment. Um, let's take the opioid crisis. Mm. The people are dying on our streets are overdosing on our streets. We need we're, we're emergent we we're emergency responders. Mm. Uh, we also run the uh, public health units that try to address uh, and prevent um, the, these types of uh, of overdoses. That needs resources. That keeps people out. Like our work keeps people out of the healthcare system provincially, mm. saving them money. Mm. And we know if uh, if if we can like the 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 path to a more efficient healthcare system is actually keeping people out of emergency rooms. Sure, like that's the path to uh, to to addressing hallway medicine mm. is keeping people out of emergency rooms. Um, so, with respect to the opioid crisis, it's it's public health units responding. Um, and to ensure that they have the resources to either have safe injection sites or to do um, uh, to to distribute uh, uh, clean uh, uh, clean uh, equipment for uh, for for users, and so if if we don't have the right tools and we're not able to do that, then all we're doing is driving up the other the other budgets mm. or making the level of service worse. Um, climate change is, is again another great example. If we deliver we deliver uh, public transit. And if we don't have the tools to do that, a lot of people are going to stay in their cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a great example is the the inability of the provincial government to uh, to to let cities 
who have the expertise in building public transit and planning public transit and operating public transit, letting us do what we do instead of now going back to the drawing board and trying to come up with a plan that will uh, might work with a regional transit system but doesn't work with a local transit system. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this this is the type of, of partnership. You need to know what, what your expertise and boundaries are. Mm-hmm. I'm a firm believer uh, that those closest to the delivery of services should plan and execute those services because they know how to deliver the services. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't be done by 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 someone who has zero has never been on a public transit system designing your public transit system that makes no sense whatsoever and so uh, that's how, that's where i see the partnership that you, you need sustain, and and it needs to be sustained it can't be for one year it can't be for two years it can't be for one term of government um the, we need to come up with a predictable uh, a predictable funding stream and policy regime if we want to actually execute on any of these grand visions that uh, that, that people have about about a Toronto, uh, where you've got accessible and affordable public transit, where you have affordable housing, uh, where you have a clean and, and prosperous economy and environment, so uh, I, I we will all be eagerly awaiting to see what the parties have to say, mm. being very careful not to be too partisan, um, but uh, but but I think people need to need to pay attention to what governments both are saying they'll do and what their their record has been of actually mm. doing. Mm. Now, s- saying that, it, it, this, this federal election that, uh, that, is, that is, is quickly approaching, and we are now in the, the campaign process of, if you don't mind, I'd like to, uh, if it's okay, have you step outside of your, your position for a moment uh, as counselor uh, and just talk about uh, the parties. And what I mean by that is this. Um, you can you can validate this for me, and I'm not sure, but some time ago, I either read or heard that uh, political parties are in fact private businesses. That they are, uh, uh, yeah, they're a private business. I, I, do you know if that is in fact true? I I wouldn't call them a business. I would call them more like a not for profit. Um, I would characterize them more like that. Um, simply because. Like a not-for-profit operates with typically a board of directors, mm-hmm. and they but they have staff. Yes, uh, they take in money. They're not necessarily selling anything. Mm. So they might take donations. They might have government grants. They the number of different ways they 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 may rent space in a building that they that they own. They might own assets, um, but their 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 motivation isn't profit. In the case of political parties, I would suspect their motivation would either be forming government or just making change happen. Um, and so, th- like, I think that the, they're probably more characterized as a not-for-profit with with a purpose, mm-hmm. rather than um, uh, rather than a for-profit business, um, because it's also not the assets aren't owned by an individual; they're yeah. owned by the collective, the 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 membership of right, right. of the party, and the mem- in in most most cases, party membership would elect. Um, this is one thing that I think a lot of Canadians don't realize. Behind the party is actually an elected board, right? Of mem that that is elected only by their members. So the, the members elect the leader, but they also would elect a. And I don't know what it is for the other parties, but the NDP they elect an exec a national executive. Mm. That then makes determinations on how uh, how the party apparatus runs, not how the government runs, which is an, an important distinction. But how the party apparatus right. is is run, how because there, there's a there's a, a distinction between the two in Ottawa. You have your leader's office, and your caucus, the the elected members and their staff, and whatever staff serve all of them collectively, and then you have the party. Mm. Who, in the case of uh, of the NDP, they're in a building down the street called the Jack Layton Building. My dad mm-hmm. helped purchase it, mm-hmm. um, and they're one floor, one or two, just a couple floors in the building. They're not; they don't take up the whole building, but they own the building. So right. there's an example of they own an asset, yes, but they're not a for profit entity. Although they they may bring revenue in through donations, or yes. through rent, or yes. um, the subsidy from the federal government was right. cut, so right. that's no longer going to parties. 
I appreciate you, you sharing that, and, and I thank you, and, and thanks for bringing up your dad, because that's why I thought it might be, y you might have some insight into, into how these parties are built and how, how they're structured, so I appreciate you saying that, and thanks. A and that's why I wanted to ask you about it. Uh, so, but they are, they're as, you, as you say, they're, they are similar to a perhaps not-for-profit, but I, I think the general public might have a, a different co conception of, of the government, you know, these parties that are government. It, it, it seems, uh, at least I, you know, always thought they were, they were affiliated with the government somehow, but in fact they're independent. They're, they're, they are independent operations. Mm -hmm. Now, they were all for years, I can't remember the year it stopped, but depending on the number of votes you got in the general election, mm -hmm. you were given a subsidy by the federal government mm -hmm. um, to help your, the operations of the party. Uh, yeah. and, and I think that that was actually an innovative tool to make sure that no, no matter how much money you could bring in fundraising, that you could continue to operate and bring a message, uh, bring your message out, mm. uh, depending on how much support you had. So, like, for example, um, the, the liberals and conservatives get giant corporate checks handed to them left, right, and center. Right. They've got no problems mm. finding funding to buy advertisements, to uh, to fly around, to, to to fly people around the country mm -hmm. to to bring their message out, um, which you need to do during election. Sure. Like I'm not faulting them for for yeah. being good electioneers, mm -hmm. uh, but when you're handed a big check, what's what's your responsibility to that company right. or that maybe not that company, the person who that company mm. uh, or the 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 companies that person yes. might be involved with. What's right. your responsibility? Right. Uh, are you more likely to take a call from them? Are you more likely to favor their policy position over another? I think a lot of people mm. listening would probably agree. Say, yeah, that kind of buys you a little bit of access. Mm -hmm. Maybe not always, mm -hmm. but sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so, so the danger is that in order to run a large um effectual campaign that helps you get your message in order to buy the the expensive ad buys to put your name on a plane and fly across the country 15 times in order to do that you you need to be taking these checks sure. well now there's no other opportunity before when there was some subsidy coming from the mm -hmm. federal government um which at its face might seem a little odd but in the case which it leveling the playing field so that people who represent the values of those with wealth and the values of those perhaps without such an ability to to pay uh, to the to the campaign itself are are kind of evened out a little bit and i think that that's like that's an important principle that we've lost yeah now something you alluded to earlier about this uh, this board that is set up uh, at least uh, with the ndp party uh, as you mentioned now the members are they're members of the party or are they are they are they members of the the you know, who, who sits yep. on that So board? they're members of the party. And I, I don't know if there are any rules against sitting members of parliament mm. from, from running in those positions, but certainly, at least to my knowledge, there are, there are none on, on the executive of the NDP. I don't think they are on other, mm. uh, in, other campaign, in other parties as well. Uh, I'm not, but I'm not positive. Um, and what is the role of that, that board? Uh, this is a really good question. I've never sat on that board before, uh, or or that uh, the 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 executive. Mm. Um, my understanding is that it's more of uh, administrative uh, oversight mm. to the the party apparatus. So again, they don't necessarily dictate policy to the sitting members of parliament. They don't tell the the, the PM yep. or the leader right. how they must vote, right. um, but they parties host policy conventions, mm. uh, parties have leadership conventions, parties have a, have staff right. um, that that are provided, like they're, if, if, uh, like boards for not-for-profits, they don't necessarily say that much must do this, but they approve a budget mm. that says, right. here's how we'd like you to spend sure. your money. Um, and then uh, they help, they, they help give insight into how do you run your policy, right. policy right. convention how do you uh, run a leadership convention? And right. they, they, they provide those level, uh, that level of support. 
So much like any other not-for-profit, as you said, if you have a good, uh, a good board that's there, they are looking after the, that policy mm -hmm. uh, for the organization, not stepping on the toes of the, the people that are running the organization kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Good. Uh, uh, Mike, is there, is there anything else you can think of that you want to talk about that we haven't touched on yet so far? One, one thing, and I, it's, it's going to be a topic in Toronto in the coming in the coming months, and this is specific to um, to uh, our efforts, um, our reconciliation efforts. There's mm. two projects coming mm. up. They're very interesting. Uh, one is there's a place and a naming effort being being put forward for a series of parks, actually um, close to your studio here, um, the Lower Dawn Parks as, right. as a network of park parks. There's a renaming effort. Um, that's bringing in an Ojibwe word for what what is generally considered to be what th this area was called, um, and I'll, I'll try to get it right. Waskatonish okay. is the word, um, meaning light in light or fire in water, okay. or something something thereabouts. Um, and there, uh, so so that is probably going to come forward pretty soon. The other um, is is I think far more dramatic, and there is an effort. To, to put a, for lack of a better word, monument, um, this legacy structure in Nathan Phillips Square, right mm. in front of City Hall, mm. uh, that has been designed and is being implemented by Council Fire. Mm. And this will recognize uh, the residential school system, survivors, mm. and, and, but, but much, much more. It's to provide a, a, and build a new space yeah. In our in our civic square, uh, to to talk about issues like reconciliation, uh, to uh, talk about any any mm. manner of thing, mm. uh, but really specifically recognize that um, that reconciliation is a dialogue, it's um, uh, it's a journey, and 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 we're we're actually gonna we're gonna be trying to find money for mm. it mm. over the short term. Mm. Uh, and it's not going to be able to entirely come from the city. It'll probably be a mix of governments and probably some private donors uh, that uh, believe in in reconciliation and the the need to do it with dignity and 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 to do it false in a fulsome fashion. Um, it's very exciting. They revealed a life size um, a replica of what is a a a, a turtle yes. coming out from uh, from from the water. Um, and there's significance about every part of the turtle, but it's a it, it will be a beautiful legacy if we manage to pull it off, and it will be right in front of our municipal building in Toronto. Yeah, that's sort of the southwest part of uh, Nathan Phillips Square, and we've had people on talking about that. Great. We were there for uh, uh, some of those uh, legacy uh, 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 events that took place up there. Um, so we're we're familiar with with both those things. In fact, the the namings, the renamings. Uh, I think there's one coming up later this month, if I'm not mistaken. There is in a in, in a park in North York. I don't have the details yeah, on. So, uh, on uh, but I think we have someone coming in to talk about that. Fantastic. Later. And um, and the legacy, yes. Uh, so so I know that that there were some structural things that had to be dealt with because it's over top of the parking there, and that turtle, which will weigh like some enormous <laughs> amount, or ten tons, or some ridiculous amount, uh, it, it had to be it had to build up that that. Uh, so they c so it could support that weight that's going to be there. Well, every the Nathan Phillips Square has its own committee that mm. does oversight over its uh, uh, its management, and it's gone through an enormous facelift over the last decade. Mm. Um, it's a it's become quite a beautiful space with the Peace Garden, um, a, a large stage, some water features, and this last piece has just sat as gravel. For it was supposed to be a, a, a high-end restaurant, mm. and it just didn't work. Mm. Like it, it didn't work mm. because, like you said, there there are structural issues. Like it, it, it hasn't functioned as mm. anything. And when the folks from Council Fire brought forward the idea and said we need like w this is part of your reconciliation efforts, it's listed in the uh, TRC's um, calls to action. What um, we, we we walked around the square a couple of times. Mm -hmm. Um, just thought about where we could find a significant spot for it, 
that made sense. This was, it's a blank canvas. It's the perfect location for it on Queen Street, right in front of City Hall. Mm. There'll be constantly people going there learning, mm -hmm. um, hopefully, um, hopefully coming away with something. And, uh, and it's a large enough space that it can be more than just a statue in, in a square, mm. um, that you can create uh, a landscape around it that helps tell a story, that helps, uh, uh, helps open people's minds, uh, and is a place of ceremony. And uh, that is, that's really exciting. You don't, you don't always get to do that. Uh, my dad was involved in, 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 in the building and execution of the Peace Garden in, in Nathan mm. Phillips Square. And uh, having any involvement in this project is, 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 is such a, um, a pleasure and, uh, and an honor uh, to, uh, to participate in. Uh, Mike, we're quickly running out of time, but I wanted to, to know, are, are you familiar with the other Indigenous efforts that are happening in the city? Uh, just briefly, if, if there's... Uh, I'm, I I'm thinking specifically about the, uh, the uh, entrepreneurial aspect and the business uh, side of things that are, that, that are being uh, brought forward. Yes, uh, yeah, with, the, with the new entrepreneurial yeah. uh, centre that's, mm -hmm. uh, that's coming, this is, has been a... Uh, a a work in progress for a long time, but it mm -hmm. seems like the levels of government are coming in with some funding. The federal and government announced some funding for this program. The city has come up with the space. Um, uh, Councillor Wong Tam has really uh, championed this for for some time, as she's uh, she she saw this space, couldn't figure out how to activate it, mm -hmm. and 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 I, I don't know where or how the light bulb got turned on in her head, but um, she uh, she she's identified it and has been tirelessly making this happen. And with the announcement of millions of dollars coming from the federal government, that's really exciting. And it, uh, having, a, having a physical space and presence in the city, if you look at what the Ryerson uh, uh, Innovation Lab has mm -hmm. done for, for that school and for those, those young people that uh, are, their businesses have taken off, um, the, the, the whole concept of co-working as a way of building around individuals a support network and a sounding board, and uh, and and really creating that creative soup mm -hmm. that you need to to see great ideas. Uh, th that's what this is going to do. Yeah. And uh, the more uh, the the more resources and, and connections we can make now between that institution as it grows and the rest of the city, the finances, the fi financiers on Bay Street, uh, the folks at City Hall from the universities. Uh, that's only going to mean good things, and so that's I think what we should start trying to focus on is once we build this up, how can we how can we open the doors and 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 draw those connections to other uh, to other Toronto institutions. I'm glad you mentioned uh, your other councillor because uh, uh, Councillor Wan Tang, as well as uh, other members of the city, are coming in. Um, and I believe uh, some of the, the partners of the Innovation and Entrepreneurial Center, that uh, business center, uh, we'll ha we have them coming in in, uh, I believe, a couple of weeks to talk more about that as, it's, uh, as it is something that's uh, uh, very exciting for, for what's going on in the city as well. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure you'll be impressed. They've got some, some great ideas. Yeah, I've been to a couple of meetings, so I'm looking forward to hear, uh, hear how this is going to move forward. Uh, Mike, it's been a pleasure having you in the studio once again and to speak with you. Uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us. Always a pleasure. I look forward to uh, speaking with you again, perhaps in the next few months, uh, maybe once the federal election has completed and uh, we can see what, uh, what the municipal uh, government has to look forward to uh, in the next four years. I, lo I look forward to it. Thanks again. Jimmy Gwetch.